And Semper Fi, always faithful. That's what we talked about last week in the words that Paul seems so desperately trying to communicate to, to Timothy. As we've mentioned, he's used passion-filled words. He's used real-life examples. Uh, people like Phygelus and Onesiphorus. People that they would have known and understood so they could learn from those examples, both bad and good. Uh, we've seen how he's used insightful illustrations. We talked about that last week. The, the soldier, the, the farmer, the athlete. Now, Paul is doing everything he can to, to get his message across to Timothy, as well as the, the church that he serves, to stand strong in their faith, to, to do the right thing, even when it's the hard thing. Always faithful. Instead of withdrawing from difficulties, Paul wants Timothy and the believers in Ephesus to, to enter in, to embrace that very real struggle of living faithfully for Christ in a sin-cursed world. Don't be ashamed of the gospel. Go and, and make disciples. That's the calling of the church. That's what we're here for. That's the mission that we've been given. But in order to go and make disciples, we must first be a disciple. We've got to lead others out of the overflow of our own walk with Christ, our experience of, of following Him and walking faithfully in obedience. In the bulletin this week, in the very back, I, I wrote about a group of men who have committed themselves to raising a modern-day night. It's a, a group of dads who have joined together to, to be intentional about raising their sons to be godly men, to, to be intentional about teaching them what it means to, to live a life that honors God. We talk about what it means to, to reject passivity, to accept responsibility, to lead courageously, and to accept or expect a greater reward. In many ways, what Paul is doing to Timothy is the very same thing. He's his beloved son, and he knows that there's temptation that will cause him to, to want to withdraw from things that are hard. He understands the influence of the world that surrounds him. And so he's speaking to Timothy, his beloved son, and he's saying, Timothy, reject passivity, accept responsibility, lead courageously, and expect a greater reward. There's a passage that the men and I have looked at that, talked about a, that talks about a father and his son. It's in Proverbs chapter 17, verse 6, and it says, The glory of the sons is his father. In that context, glory means weight. It kind of has a, a heaviness to it. The point is that the, the father's instruction is what helps ground his son so that he's not lightly tossed around by every wind of doctrine or every cultural fad that, that comes along. In a very real way, Paul is saying the, the same thing to Timothy. And what he's telling him is, Timothy, ground yourself in the glory of Jesus Christ. Let the truth of the gospel ground your life so that you're not tossed around by all the things going on around you. Fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the Father. Consider him, consider Jesus, who endured such hostility from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Paul's words to Timothy are very relevant to us. His message is clear. He says, remember Jesus Christ. 
because here's the reality. What we remember ultimately determines how we live. Where we fix our mind ultimately determines where we go and what we do. That's the message that's relevant to us. So before we look at that together, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, I'm thankful that you recognize who we are as finite beings who are quick to forget. And so you consistently, throughout your scripture, call us to remember. You recognize that what we remember ultimately determines how we live. Where we set our mind determines what we worship. And so, Father, this morning, would you please, by your mercy and grace, draw our hearts back to you. Help us to center our lives on Jesus Christ, our Savior. Help us remember what he has done for us so that we might be motivated to live faithfully for him. Would you please, in your grace and mercy, develop that desire in our heart this morning. We pray this in your name. Amen. We'll turn to 2 Timothy chapter 2, and we'll pick up where we left off in verse 8. So 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 8. If you want to follow along, it says, Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, descendant of David, according to my gospel, for which I suffer hardship, even to imprisonment as a criminal. But the word of God is not imprisoned. Paul tells Timothy, Remember Jesus Christ, because what you remember determines how you live. What you remember determines where you find hope. You cannot cling to something that you do not recall. Remember Jesus Christ. And it's interesting, that order, Jesus Christ, is unique in his letter. In fact, if I go back to chapter 1, you don't need to turn there, but just listen to what Paul says in the first two verses. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God according to the promise of life in Christ Jesus. To Timothy, my beloved son, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. That's the typical order. Twelve times he says it in that order. Christ Jesus, Christ Jesus. But here, he switches it. He says, Jesus Christ. And that little nuance gives us a clue of what he's trying to communicate. Because each of those titles is tied to an intended outcome. Jesus, risen from the dead. Christ, descendant of David. Let me show you what I mean. You may remember when the angel first visited Joseph and explained to him Mary's mysterious pregnancy. Listen to the words that he said in Matthew chapter 1, verse 20. It says, But when he had considered this, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, the son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for that which has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. And she will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. For it is he who will save his people from their sins. The angel is the one who gave Jesus his name, but then goes on to explain what that name means. Jesus, Yeshua in Hebrew, means God will save. Jesus' name describes his purpose. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. In his humanity, he lived among us. And that humanity is important. In fact, it's essential to the understanding of his atonement on our behalf. Without his humanity, it is not possible. Let me show you what I mean. In Galatians chapter 4, verse 5, 
or verse 4, it says, But when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, in order that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive adoption as sons. Only a human born under the law could rescue those who live under the penalty of the law. It's the only way Jesus could become the atoning sacrifice for our sins. He who knew no sin must become sin, our sin. He was a substitutionary atonement. That means he took our place on the cross, paid the punishment that we deserve. That's what atonement is all about. And only one born from a woman, a woman, a, a, a man born under the law in his humanity could take the place of those who live under the penalty of the law. His humanity is critical to his atonement, but his divinity is essential to his victory over sin. Acts chapter 2, verse 24 says this. It says, And God raised him up, putting an end to the agony of death, since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. It's impossible because he who eternally existed cannot cease to exist. It's impossible because Jesus is God, fully human, fully divine. And both are essential because in his humanity, he took the punishment that we deserved under the law. In his divinity, he overcame the power of sin as a consequence of the law. Jesus, fully man, bore the penalty of sin. Jesus, fully God, has victory over sin. Jesus, risen from the dead. And Christ, descendant of David. That word Christ uh, means Messiah or anointed one. From a biblical perspective, when you hear anointed, one of the things you probably think about is a king. Because kings were anointed into their office. And so what Paul is doing here is he's making a connection to the, the covenant promise that God made to David, the king he anointed, King David. In that covenant, God promised David a son from his lineage that would one day reign. But he gives a qualification as to the uniqueness of this reign. In that promise, he says that his throne would be established forever. That his reign, his kingdom would have no end. And so God promises a king from David's lineage who will reign eternal. Well, that promise was ultimately fulfilled in Jesus Christ, the messianic king, a descendant of David. And, and even Jesus knew that this was true. You'll remember when he first began his, his ministry, what did he tell everybody? Repent for the kingdom is at hand. And everything that he did while he was on earth in his ministry was intended to validate his authority as king. So his power over sickness and disease, he made the, the lame walk, he made the blind see. Even the winds and, and, and waves obeyed him. All of this to establish his authority as that promised king, the Messiah. And by faith, when we put our trust in him, we live under his righteous reign. That's why Colossians explains it this way. It says, For he delivered us from the domain of darkness, and listen, transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, 
in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, descendant of David. And within that name is the gospel message. He is the promised Messiah who came to save us from our sins. And what we remember is where we find hope. What we remember determines how we live. We just sang a song about that reality. And as Byron said, sometimes we just sing the song. We don't realize what we said. So let me remind you of the words. Our hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly trust in Jesus' name. All other ground, sinking sand. On Christ the solid rock I stand. That's the promise. That's the truth. That's the ground that we stand on. We do hard things when it's the right thing to do. We join in suffering for the sake of the gospel because we remember what Christ has done for us. All the promises of God are yes in Jesus Christ. All the promises of God are yes in Jesus Christ. Looking at Christ centers our heart on what we know to be true, on the promises that God has made all throughout his word. In Isaiah 40, it says, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will endure forever. No matter how bad things get, it simply does not change how good God is. Paul was in prison, but he did not lose hope in the power of God at work in the world around him. He knew that he might be in chains, but there was nothing holding back the power of God that was at work in the world around him. Now, there's a ministry that we're all familiar with that has as its mission the distribution of God's word. This is Gideon's, right? And so they, of all people, have a lot of stories that describe the power of God's word at work in the world around us. And it is not imprisoned. In fact, it will go into the prisons and does some of its greatest work. So listen to this testimony. I got involved in drugs while I was in dental school, thinking that I could do both. Be a graduate student by day and doing drugs and partying. Well, this whole time, my parents, they had been a Christian for several years now and just had really grown in their faith. My parents knew the only way they would be able to see me since I wanted nothing to do with them. They actually flew down to Atlanta one time, and after the second day, I kicked them out. But my dad, he wanted to give me something, and it was his very first Bible, and he left it on my kitchen counter. But as soon as they left, I took his Bible, and I threw it in the trash can. My mom prayed that God would do whatever it takes to bring this prodigal son to the Father. Well, this miracle, this answer to prayer came one day with a bang on my door. I opened up my door, and on my front doorstep were 12 federal drug enforcement agents, Atlanta police, and two big German shepherd dogs. I just received a large shipment of drugs, and they confiscated all my money and my drugs, and I was charged with a street value equivalent of 9.1 tons of marijuana. I was walking around the cell block, and I passed by this garbage can, and as I looked at that garbage can, I felt like I was looking at my own life. And I was about to pass by that garbage can, but something on top of the trash caught my eye. I bent over, and I picked it up, 
and was a Gideon's New Testament. I took that New Testament back to my cell and for the very first time, I opened up that New Testament and I read through the entire Gospel of Mark. And as I know today, what we have in our Bibles is not just ink on paper, but what we have in our Bibles is the very breath of God. And it's living and powerful and sharper than any double-edged sword. And as I began to read God's Word, it began to penetrate me and it began to cut through my stubborn, hard heart. He revealed His plan for my life and He called me full-time ministry while I was in prison. So the greatest miracle of this whole story is that actually Moody accepted me. I was released from prison in July of 2001 and I started the very next month. I'm teaching now back at Moody in the Bible department. So I tell people I went from prisoner to professor. Only God can do that. And that's one of hundreds of thousands of stories, much like yours and I's, that talk about the power of God's Word. I distinctly remember <coughs> when I was in Dallas. <coughs> Donna, you've heard this story before. I was visiting, my, my wife and I were married at the time, and we were visiting her parents, and we were there in Dallas, and my brother Jay, who was living in Dallas at the time, gave me a call. And Jay was uh, kind of the black sheep of the family and did whatever he wanted to do, kind of lived his own life. And so it was unusual for me to receive that call. And so whenever he called me, he said, hey, Todd, I, I need something to, I have something I want to tell you. Can, can I come over? And I was like, wow, this is weird. Yeah, sure. So he comes over and he sits down and he says, I just have to tell you something. He said, I've been really confused about all the different perspectives out there. He said, I've gone to the Baptist church. I've gone to the Catholic church. I've gone to all these churches. And he says, I just had to figure it out for myself. He said, so I read the Bible from cover to cover. And here's what I found to be true. And he then laid out for me the most beautiful description of the gospel I think I've ever heard. And he said, I just wanted you to know that's what I believe. It had totally changed his life. Because he took the time to invest himself and to find out what it means. And God answered his questions. And ultimately, he saved his life. And he lives eternally in his presence because of that. That's the power of God's word. And that's essentially what Paul is telling Timothy. I may be in chains, but there is nothing that will stop the spread of God's word. So remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, descendant of David. Now look at verse 10. For this reason, I endure all things for the sake of those who were chosen, that they also may obtain salvation, which is in Christ Jesus and with it eternal glory. See, Paul's compassion for people is what gave meaning to his suffering. This wasn't just some meaningless trial, some empty struggle. He suffered because he believed that there were lives at stake. His compassion for people is what gave him meaning in his suffering. I endure all things for the sake of the chosen. And even within that statement, there's a, a, a picture of the depth of what Paul believed. He, he's talking about those who have not yet come to faith. And he knew that there was not a person that he would meet, no matter how bad they were, that was outside the boundaries of God's saving grace. And so he was faithful to preach God's word because he knew that it had the power to save. He was trusting in God's power, regardless of the circumstances, no matter how hopeless it might seem. 
And Paul even believed that about his own inadequacies. In Scripture, we see that he says that I am not an eloquent speaker, but I believe in the power of God's Word. He was run out of cities, but God's truth remained. Even now, he was thrown in jail, but God's Word was not imprisoned. Paul knew that God's Word has the power to save. And it was his life's work to make it known. He was willing to suffer even for the the sake of someone else. Because he knew that no one was beyond the limits of God's saving grace. Now, here's how great his passion was. This is something that he communicated in Romans chapter 9 that I honestly have a hard time getting my head around. So let me read that to you. Romans chapter 9. Uh, verses 1 and 3, 1 through 3. He says there, he says, I am telling the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bearing witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed, separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. No matter how many times I read that passage, I have the hardest time getting my head around it. The depth of Paul's love for the people he ministered to was unfathomable to the point that he says, I would forego heaven and experience eternal damnation if those who were my brethren might come to faith in Christ. The way I've resolved this in my mind is that there are depths of love that are indescribable, and that's one of them. And as great as that is, it's even greater in Christ. Because I want you to think about this. Think about how our infinite God, our limitless God, took on the form of a finite being, a human. I I want you to think about how the ruler of all creation came to serve those he created. His love was so great that he set heaven aside in order to dwell among us. His life's work was to make his salvation known. Not just in what he said, but in how he lived, and most importantly, how he died. Because of his great love, he who knew no sin became sin. He took the punishment that we deserved. His sacrifice was on our behalf. He did what Paul said that he would be willing to do. Jesus Christ was cut off from divine blessing in that moment in which he took upon himself our divine wrath. The wrath that we deserve from God, he took upon himself. A love like that has no logical explanation. I think if we could ever capture... The magnitude of what I just described, it would transform the way we lived our life for Christ. It would empower us, like it did for Paul, to have compassion, to to enter into suffering for the sake of, of someone else, because we recognize, ultimately, what Christ has done for us, even if it means enduring hardship to do so. What we remember determines how we love Look at how he continues in verse 11. 
it is a trustworthy statement. If we died with him, we shall also live with him. If we endure, for we, sh- if we, endure we shall also reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Now, it's in quotations in your Bible because this is something that was likely a a baptismal creed or some sort of hymn that Paul is quoting that likely Timothy and the readers would have uh, known very well. It follows an easy kind of if-then pattern, so it could be committed to memory and probably was. If we died with him, we shall also live with him. The reason some people think it's a, a baptismal creed is because how closely it ties itself to what Paul wrote to the Romans in chapter 6. So let me read that to you. Romans chapter 6, verse 3 says, Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death, in order that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be with him in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing that the old self was crucified with him, that our body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin, for he who has died is freed from sin. Now we have died with Christ. We also believe we shall also live with him. It's the exact same words. And so many believe it's tied to that very same thought. Baptism symbolizes a spiritual reality. It's a picture of what took place at the moment of faith. Now, we're going to be doing a baptismal service here in a few weeks, so I want you to listen closely to what it is we will be celebrating. And here's the key. The Christian faith is based on the belief that by faith, what is true for Christ has become true for us. I don't miss that. The Christian faith is based on the belief that by faith, whatever is true for Christ has become true for us. So it says, when Jesus Christ died on the cross, our old self was crucified with him. It says our body of sin might be done away with. Now, when he's talking about the body of sin, he's talking about a life that is ruled by sin. Someone who is a a slave to sin and powerless to break free, which is true for every human ever born in the reality of who we are in the penalty of sin, that curse of sin. A slave to sin, powerless to break free, that's the body of sin. But by faith in Christ, that bondage to sin slavery was broken at the cross. That sin-cursed body was put to death. It was crucified with Christ. He who knew no sin became sin. He took what we had upon himself, becoming that atoning sacrifice for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Do you see the exchange? He who knew no sin became sin. That's ours. So that in the exchange by faith, we might become the righteousness of God in him. So what was true of him now becomes true for us. But it doesn't end there. It says that his death had a purpose, that if we die with him, it goes on, it says we shall also rise with him. Just as Jesus was resurrected, so too have we been resurrected to a new life in Christ. Old things gone, 
new things come. Why? Because we are a new creation in Christ. When we lose our life for his sake, that's when we gain new life in Christ. Sin is no longer our master. We no longer live enslaved to sin and powerless to break free because that power was broken at the cross. Baptism is a picture of a spiritual reality so that we say, buried with him in baptism, so that our body of sin might be done away with, that slavery to sin is broken, and we are raised to a newness in life so that we may walk as a new creation in Christ. He then goes on to say, if we endure, we shall also reign with him. It takes endurance, as we've been talking about, to live faithfully for Christ in a sin-cursed world. We need to accept that reality. It's not easy. It's very often painful. It is not easy to live faithfully for Christ in a sin-cursed world, so we must endure. We are consistently pressing against the opposition of an enemy. He seeks to destroy the, the credibility of our message, to create doubt in our hearts, so it should be of no surprise when we encounter difficulty. Suffering is an expected reality of the Christian life. You remember, we talked about it last week, that it's not the presence of suffering that should cause alarm. It's the absence of suffering that should cause us worry. But we endure because of a promised reward. And passage you're probably familiar with, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 17. It says, For this momentary light affliction, is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. While we look not at the things which are seen, but the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Suffering is temporal. It will not last. But our life in Christ is eternal. It has no end. One day, there will be no more suffering. There will be no more pain. As my friend Doug Kennedy would say, it's the perfect place, right, Gentry? Where there is no more sin. There is no more suffering. There is no more pain. It's perfect because we live eternally in perfect relationship with the God who set us free. We are the redeemed. And we reign because of his victory over sin. What is true for him has become true for us. We experience the fullness of everything he created us to be in all its infinite goodness. That's what we endure for. That's the good news. But almost surprisingly, as you're reading this, this creed, there's this twist that kind of catches you off guard because he says, if we deny him, he will also deny us. Where did that come from? Well, actually, it's the exact words that Jesus himself said in Matthew chapter 10. Let me read that to you. Matthew chapter 10, verse 32. Jesus is speaking. This is what he says. Everyone, therefore, who shall confess me before men, I will also confess him before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever shall deny me before men, I will also deny him before my Father who is in heaven. Rejecting Christ has eternal consequences. We are eternally united with Christ in faith. We are eternally separated from God in disbelief. Now, keep in mind, this is not just a, a verbal uh, rejection. It, it includes a lifestyle 
that goes with it. We know that because on Judgment Day, the Scripture tells us that there will be those who claim to be Christian, and God will say, I never knew you. Because a lifestyle must match the profession. Matthew chapter 7, verse 20 says this. Matthew chapter 7, verse 20. So then, you will know them by their fruits. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord. Not everyone who claims to be a Christian, who claims to recognize that God exists. Not everyone will enter the kingdom of heaven. But he who does the will of my Father is he who is in heaven. Titus says something very similar in chapter 1, verse 16. He says, they profess to know God. But by their deeds, they deny him. You see, we can deny him not just by what we say, but also by how we live. They profess to know God, but by their deeds, they deny him. Being detestable and disobedient and worthless for any good. Those are strong words. But it's important to understand. Because a lifestyle of unrepentant sin betrays a profession in Jesus Christ. They are mutually ex exclusive. The one cannot exist with the other. If we deny him, he will deny us. That's the warning. But then Paul speaks encouragement in what he says next when he says, if we are faithless, now that's different, and we'll talk about why that's the case. If we are faithless, then he is faithful. Because he cannot deny himself. The word faithless in this context is a word that is intended to communicate doubt. Uh, to be uncertain about what you believe. Now, let me have a show of hands of anyone who has ever doubted or been uncertain of what they believe. Raise your hand, please. Every hand in the room needs to be raised. And so that's why what Paul says next should be of great comfort to us. In our moments of doubt, God does not desert us. The security of our salvation is in his promise, not our performance. You see, doubt is different than denial, and here's how. We have seasons of doubt, especially when we're going through hard times, right? We're really questioning what in the world is going on here. We have seasons of doubt, but denial is a permanent rejection. It is a lifestyle of unrepentant sin. It's that idea of Paul saying to the Romans, shall we continue in sin that grace may increase? Those who truly follow Christ would say, may it never be. Doubt happens in seasons. Denial is a lifetime of unrepentance. You see, it's the kindness of the Lord that leads us to repentance. It's his faithfulness to us that motivates us to be faithful to him. Just think for a second about the example we see in the apostle Peter, right? A great man of faith. The very first apostle to openly proclaim Jesus as the Messiah. Jesus said, who do, you, who do people say that I am? And they told him, well, some say you're John the Baptist, some say different things. And then he says, but who do you say that I am? He says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God, boldly proclaiming faith in Jesus Christ as the promised Messiah. He was the only one who was willing to step out of the boat in faith and literally walk on water by fixing his eyes on Jesus. 
But he was also the one that in the midst of hardship denied Jesus three times. Refusing to stand with Jesus in an effort to protect his own life. He was faithless. But God was faithful. Because just think about how Jesus restored him. When he came to him and he said, Peter, do you love me? Peter said, well, of course, you know I love you. Then feed my sheep. Peter, do you love me? Well, of course, you, you asked me that the first time. It's the same the second. Of course I do. Then feed my sheep. Peter, do you love me? I think it's in that moment that Peter understood. Jesus wasn't asking him a question to gain information for himself. He was asking Peter a question so that he would learn what was true that Jesus already knew. Yes, you love me. Yes, you failed. But if you will trust in me, I will restore you. Why? Because even when you're faithless, I remain faithful. Because I cannot deny the promise that I've made to you. To never leave you, to never forsake you, to never abandon you. And so look at the impact that that had on Peter's life. What happened next? He's standing before a large crowd at Pentecost, thousands of people proclaiming Jesus Christ as the promised Messiah, right? He goes on to stand before the religious leaders who, by the way, had put Jesus to death for the very same things that Peter was proclaiming to be true. That faithfulness of God had motivated him to be faithful in response. He had seasons of doubt, but God restored his faith. Yes, he failed, but he did not take advantage of God's grace. He used it to motivate him to be faithful. And the very same thing should be true for us. What we remember determines how we live. What we remember determines how we love. It's his faithfulness to us that should motivate us to live faithfully for him. So here's what I want to encourage you to do this week. I want us to just practically take the words of Paul and apply them to our life. Remember Jesus Christ. And I want to ask you to think about four things. Please write these down, okay? I want you to think about his sacrifice, number one. So remember Jesus Christ, and in doing so, I want you to think about his sacrifice, the second thing is his forgiveness. Remember Jesus Christ and think about his forgiveness. Thirdly, remember Jesus Christ and think about his grace. And then lastly, remember Jesus Christ and think about his faithfulness. Those four things, sometime during this week, spend time considering each of them. And as you do, think about scriptures that would apply. Like John 15, 13, that says, Greater love has no man than he who has laid down his life for his friend. That's what he's done for you. That's the demonstration of his love. A love of such depth, as we've already talked about, it really has no logical explanation. For the infinite God to, to come in the form of a finite man, to, to leave heaven in order to dwell with us on earth, to, to take a punishment that we deserved so that we might have our righteousness in him. Just consider what all that means and how 
your salvation is not based on your striving and effort. Just stop and think about that. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Think about his sacrifice. Think about his forgiveness. He is faithful. If we confess our sins, to forgive us of all sins and cleanse us of unrighteousness. So that means, now think about this, think about this, that means that we do not have to carry along shame and guilt for the rest of our life. We've all made mistakes, big ones, things that we're shameful of. And God says, you don't have to carry it because I took it to the cross. Think about that. Think about His grace, how His power is perfected in weakness. He says, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is perfected in your weakness. I'm reading a book right now called The The Way of the Dragon and the Way of the Lamb. The whole premise of the book is trying to highlight the biblical principle that it is the weak who are made strong and how antithetical it is to the world in which we live in and for many cases, the churches in which we worship in. Because the message of the world and sometimes the message of the church is identify what your strengths are, live within those strengths, and be the best person you can come to be, as successful as you can possibly be within the boundaries of those strengths that you have. But he goes on to say, but rejoice in the strengths that you have, but never lose sight of the weaknesses that you possess. Because if we live only within our strengths, God's just an add-on. He's something that we need to help us. Our weaknesses remind us that we depend on Him. That apart from Christ, we can do nothing. And so even within the context of using the gifts and abilities that we've given us, may we always remember our weaknesses. So that like the song we sang this morning, every hour I need you. Never forget that. And remember his faithfulness. His mercies are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Live within the reality of what he's done for you, his faithfulness to you, and let that motivate you to live faithfully for him because of what he's accomplished on our behalf. So remember Jesus Christ. Please take some time and just consider what that means in your life this week. So let me pray for us, and then we have uh, an announcement to finish up. Father, thank you so much for the blessing of your word and its reminder in our lives of what we know to be true because of what you've said in your word. May we not forget to remember. May we take time this week just specifically considering who you are and what you've accomplished in your sacrifice, in your forgiveness, in your grace, and in your faithfulness. And may we live life differently because of what we remember and know to be true. We pray this in your name. Amen. Would the Ormonds come up, please? There they are. I want to introduce some folks to to you that, uh, in case you haven't met them yet, you'll have an opportunity to come by and shake hands with them. Uh, This is Brian and Jessica Ormond and Jonas and Silas. That's a good idea. Get get, get up there where where folks can see you. Attaboy. There you go. They uh, moved to to Lullapik a while back and began to attend Melanie Park last year, right? Yeah. 
and they've been through the welcome class and would like to let you know that they want to become a part of this church family, so they've done all the class and the interviews and all that, and we're just pleased as punch to to have them with us. Again, Brian and Jessica and Jonas and Silas. There you go. Okay, so we're we're gonna pray, and as soon as, soon as we're we're done, uh, you'll be dismissed. But before you leave, would you please come up and shake sh- shake hands with them? Okay. All right. Let let us pray together. Father, we are so thankful to you for the love that you have shown to us, and Father, um, every day causes us to uh, remember what our Savior has done for us. Lord, for this church family that you've put us in, we're also grateful for those who love us and care for us and that we can look after each other in the way that you've designed. And Father, I thank you for the Ormans and the just the realization that you have brought them to us uh, for us to be able to bless them and them to be able to bless us and ask, Father, that you would uh, show them the places that they can minister throughout this body for your glory and for the building up of this group of people here. We love you and adore you, and thank you again for our great opportunity we've had to be together today. In your son's name we pray. Amen.